Hello, readers. Joan Ryan is an award-winning journalist whose acclaim includes becoming one of the country's first female sports columnists with the San Francisco Examiner in 1985. She's also the author of five books, most notably Little Girls in Pretty Boxes. The most recent work is Intangibles, Unlocking the Science and Soul of Team Chemistry. Joan, thank you for the time today. For context for the rest of this conversation, what is Team Chemistry? The definition I landed on is that team chemistry is an interplay of biological, psychological, and emotional forces that result in elevated performance. Why it works and how it works and what's the science behind it, that's basically what this book is about. It's what sets this book apart. I study the evolutionary biology component and organizational psychology and tons of neuroscience to just kind of figure out why players can influence each other so profoundly that they actually help each other's performance. Although you do spend some time on basketball, your primary focus with this book is baseball. Why did you choose this sport versus some of the other team sports with less individual isolation within the games? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's the one that I really considered a lot as I went into this book. And I thought, well, if I can prove scientifically that team chemistry exists, meaning that the players influence each other enough to affect their performance, then it really would apply to almost any group with a shared goal. Because when you think about an office, everybody's in their cubicles or, you know, they're doing their own work and everybody's work is contributing to one purpose. And that's baseball. We look out on a field and it does seem like Once you're out on the field, your teammates can't really help you, right? You're in your little cubicle out in left field or right field or in the batter's box on the mound. And so, yes, you throw the ball to each other, but you're kind of doing that on your own. And what I found is, of course, you're not out on your own (laughs) out there. Yes, there's nobody standing next to you, hiking you the ball or throwing you the ball so that, you know, you can score a touchdown. But when you step into that batter's box or you're standing on the mound, you're bringing with you all of the influence that your teammates have had on you up to that moment. And you're feeling it out on the field because these are your guys. These are the guys you've gone into battle with. And my favorite, favorite and most insightful quote of the 150-something people I interviewed came from Jake Peavy, the Cy Young winner. Anybody who has seen Jake Peavy on the mound knows that that guy is given a hundred, hundred, hundred percent. You know, <laughs> he is all in and intense. And when I was interviewing him, I said, okay, Jake, team chemistry I know helps a lot of people, but how can it help elevate your performance? You can't give more than a hundred percent. And he said, when I'm on the mound, My teammates bring out a fight in me I can't willingly summon for myself. And it almost took my breath away because I said, oh, my God, that's it. And now I just have to figure out why they can bring out this extra fight in him that he can't summon for himself. But it does go back to that interdependence of human beings and how we complete each other. 
I think people underestimate how difficult it is to get to 100%. Like, you feel like you can get to it on your own, but the reality is that it does take some outside force to help get you there. It does. But many of us don't acknowledge it. And certainly we are a culture as Americans that this individualism of, you know, I'm going to pull myself up from my bootstraps and I'm going to go out and strike out on my own. And the people you hear say, you know, I am a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman. And guess what? There's no such thing as much as we want to think that we are, we're not. We are these open loop creatures who need other people to complete us. And in fact, One of the more fascinating interviews I did was with this incredible neuroscientist psychoanalyst named Thomas Lewis, who wrote this book that just blew my mind about it's called um, A General Theory of Love. But it sounds like a book about team chemistry, (laughs) even though the guy couldn't tell a baseball from a football. (laughs) But what he was saying is that in human nature, everything is about relationship. So for example, he said, you are a different person depending on who you're with. Like maybe you feel funnier when you're with this person or you feel more articulate when you're with that person. And I was like, yeah, gosh, I do. I have some friends where like, I'm not the funniest human being in the world, but with them, I feel really funny. And I said, so are they tapping something in me? I didn't know I had. And he said, well, no, there's really no you the way you think there's a you. There is only you in relationship. So every time you're in interaction with somebody else, you are changed, however slightly you are changed by just reading that person's nonverbal signals, their tone of voice, everything about them is contagious. And then we respond with our own different tone of voice, with our own body language, and we have these mirror neurons in our brain. So beyond just the team chemistry and elevated performance, it was fascinating just to see how we human beings work. (laughs) Yeah. And speaking of what you learned from Thomas Lewis, how does oxytocin, also known as the love hormone, factor into team chemistry? Well, that's a huge one, Trey, and thanks for bringing it up. As you said, it's called the love hormone, the trust hormone. And oxytocin is released in our brain in the amygdala, and it goes into our bloodstream. Several things trigger oxytocin. One of them is touch, like meaningful touch. Like let's say somebody puts their hand on your shoulder and says, Trey, man, you killed it today. You are really great. And you're just so valuable to our team. Your brain is getting that trust, feeling that trust from this other person and oxytocin is released, and you're feeling this kind of sense of trust back to this person and a bonding with this person because of the oxytocin. Oxytocin was really kind of discovered when women were in labor and when they were breastfeeding because it facilitates and fosters bonding, which obviously is hugely important between a mother and a baby. We get it when somebody just gives us a hug or just makes us feel that we belong to the tribe. Oxytocin can be released even if that gesture of trust, that touch, those words aren't even to you. If you are witnessing that happening, our brains will release oxytocin as if it's happening to us. 
Who or what is Huff Daddy, and why is he a great example of the most positive impact good team chemistry can have on even the biggest of lost causes? Yeah. (laughs) Aubrey Huff, who arrived at the Giants in 2010 and came from a variety of teams in which he was not liked, he performed well on most of them, which is why he continued to get jobs but he was not liked and he was on so many losing teams that he just became this guy who punched the clock, you know, came late, left early, just didn't have a whole lot to do with his teammates. So he arrives at the Giants, one-year contract. He was on the scrap heap. Nobody wanted him. He shows up and because of the culture of the Giants at the time, which was a lot of young guys, Barry Bonds was gone. His last year was 2008. And it was Tim Lincecum and Matt Kane, Madison Bumgarner, all these really cool young guys and some other veterans. But there really wasn't a leader on that team. And Huff comes in, you know, as a veteran and sense of humor, a lot of energy. And all of a sudden he's looking around and to his great shock, his teammates were looking up to him (laughs) as a leader that he knew stuff and he was a charismatic character. And then he responded in kind. And so There's a whole chapter about the transformation of Aubrey Huff in that clubhouse because he wasn't that person any year before that. And even though he played two more years with the Giants, he got a two-year contract after the World Series, he was never that way again. So it goes to show, number one, how easily changed a culture can be, as it was from 2010 to 2011, certainly with him and a few other guys. And how just the right culture in the exact time with these exact people going after this exact quest, someone like Aubrey Huff could actually be transformed. And it was a great team chemistry culture, which bends all the players toward each other and toward their shared purpose. So that was a really interesting thing to explore. You hypothesized that team chemistry requires seven different archetype characters. What was your first archetype to come up with, and how did you settle on seven? All along, one of my theories was, which proved to be wrong, actually, was that you had to have all these different roles filled. And so I had this running list, and it was probably like 20 (laughs) different personality types, And um, it just seemed like, okay, if you could identify all of these and you can put them together like the periodic table, you know, they would become this other thing. And so as I kept going, I realized that it doesn't work like that. It's certainly not as simple as that. And I would run different ones by players and coaches. And I just kept this running list for years. And I finally landed on my seven. Warrior, Sage, Kid buddy, enforcer, jester, and spark plug. And then I was interviewing a neuroscientist about something else. And I mentioned this and he said, oh my God, I did a whole study on that. And he did actual research. What he did with his students and postdoc grads and all of that was have them go through five years maybe 10 years of Sports Illustrated issues and pull out 
personality types that were repeated over and over and over again. And then he got this list of like 14, but he also had the negative ones. And I don't have the negative ones in here. And he also went to coaches mostly to see, okay, does this ring true to you? And he got similar feedback that I did too. So I really feel confident that these seven archetypes generally appear on great chemistry teams. And I bet they appear in offices with a little tweaking of the definition of each one of them. And what I really believe and feel like I have evidence for is that the team itself manifests these seven archetypes. And what I mean by that is that generally you can't hire for them because you don't know what role they're going to play in your culture. Somebody who is a warrior on one team, as he ages, he becomes the sage. And of course, the kid grows into something else. So I'm going to keep saying this, but team chemistry like human nature is so complex and we influence each other in different ways. And the combination of all those influences bring out different things in us. The jester archetype is obviously the guy who amuses his teammates, but you also refer to the jester as a shapeshifter. What do you mean by that? The jester, to me, can be the most powerful person on a team. And I say that because the jester can do a lot of things. The jester can break the tension with something that he knows everybody's going to laugh at. And he has to be genuine. You can't just be the clown. And that's why it's not called a clown. You know, court gestures were very, very smart. And so that's how it has to be on a team. But what the jester also can do is the jester can send very, very sharp criticism. But when you wrap it in humor, when it lands, it doesn't sting as much. And when it's wrapped in humor the recipient of the criticism doesn't feel diminished or ostracized. So a smart jester can be the enforcer in a way that is positive and keeps everyone on track. Is there such a thing as a teammate who fills all seven archetypes? The only person I personally have witnessed who is all seven is Steph Curry of the Golden State Warriors hmm. because he is actually a warrior, best player on the team. He's a sage because he's been around long enough. He's the kid because nobody else plays with that joy of every single day he's on that court. Hmm. It's such joy. And he always reminds all his teammates just by how he operates that, man, this is a fun game and we're really lucky to be out here and I can't wait for tomorrow. He's the buddy, just a great teammate, all-inclusive, the enforcer. He'll get on guys when they need getting on and certainly the spark plug. So he's the one, and I'm sure they exist. I just personally don't watch them. A guy like Johnny Gomes, and if you're a baseball fan, you might still not have heard of him, <laughs> a career 242 hitter. But Johnny Gomes was that guy who played for a lot of different teams because he's a 242 hitter, didn't last long with any team. But a pattern emerged over his career, which was that his teams won. And I call guys like him super carriers of chemistry. 
because they have an impact on a team that is rare. And he was the poster boy for super carriers. He had a lot of enthusiasm. He was genuine. Nobody worked harder. He would help his teammates. He'd go watch video. If he saw a guy was having trouble at the plate and watch his last hundred at bats and say, hey, dude, you know, I saw something. Do you want to talk about it? And people would listen to him because they trusted him. I mean, trust is at the basis of everything. If you trust the messenger, you're going to hear the message. If you don't trust the messenger, you're going to totally dismiss it. And everybody trusted Johnny Gomes. Yeah, on that, how did Johnny Gomes' upbringing help him become a super carrier of team chemistry? It's so interesting to look back on what shapes each of us to be who we are as adults. And Johnny Gomes grew up in Petaluma, a small town north of San Francisco, didn't have any money, single mother. He had a brother and financially always in hard times. So they moved from house to house to house to house and He'd come home one day and his mother would say, hey, pack up your stuff. And he and his brother would throw everything in a big hefty garbage bag and on they went to the next place. And he didn't have family beyond really his mother and his brother and his grandparents. And so they never had much of a Christmas, you know, never celebrated things. And so when he started playing Little League, he found what felt like home more than anything he had experienced. And He went to school in Petaluma, an uneven economic town. So there's quite a bit of money depending on which neighborhood you lived in. And he'd go to school and he'd have the crummy clothes and the crummy backpack and the no logo sneakers. And when he went to play Little League, everybody wore the same clothes. Everybody was in a uniform. And he really found his place in the world there. And his teammates meant more to him than anything. And he totally flourished and thrived in that environment. And all through his life, he was a guy that sought out teams. So when he walked into a new clubhouse, he already felt at home because just by virtue of being on that team, he had his family. His teams were always his family. And that has never left him. And I think, frankly, he's having a tough time post-playing. He works for the Diamondbacks and he coaches in the minor leagues and in development camps. But I think it's really tough for guys like him to navigate the world without their pack. While you interviewed a lot of different people in this book, you were declined by a few. Were you surprised that A's general manager Billy Bean did not accommodate your request? I was surprised, frankly. I mean, I know Billy going back years. And I also know through mutual friends and acquaintances that he isn't anti-team chemistry. He's smart enough to recognize that obviously there's a human element, that they can come up with the most brilliant algorithms ever devised on game strategy, on valuing players, on what is the best combination in a lineup, all of that. And they can put every piece in place. But guess what? Actual human beings have to carry out that brilliant strategy. And if you don't understand or even acknowledge what goes into keeping guys motivated over 162 games, I'm sorry, these guys aren't machines. I was on a Sabermetrics panel and the moderator asked, if I'm paying this guy X, 
Why shouldn't I expect that he performs every day? That's why I hired him. And I'm like, but he is not a machine that you flip a switch and he's going to churn out 500 cardboard boxes every work shift. That's not how human beings work. So you have to acknowledge and understand how do I help them perform at their maximum, at their best. And that's where you get into really understanding how human beings work. And again, I'm a broken record, but how they influence one another. The opposite of a super carrier is a super disruptor, a bad apple. And a single bad apple can ruin an entire team. You do a great job of explaining it with the old Russian metaphor. A spoonful of tar can ruin a barrel of honey, but a spoonful of honey does nothing for a barrel of tar. Considering (laughs) that you covered his entire career in San Francisco, is Barry Bonds one of the all-time great examples of a super disruptor? I sure went into this book thinking he was (laughs) because (laughs) I did cover him for quite a few years in San Francisco and was in the clubhouse and really avoided him as much as I could, frankly. I was a columnist, so because I wasn't a beat writer, I didn't have to talk to him every day. I think it was Bleacher Report who ranked top 10, top 20 worst teammates of all time, and Bonds is on everybody's list. And interestingly enough, so is Jeff Kent. And of course, if we're thinking about super disruptors, putting both of those guys in the same clubhouse, (laughs) you would think would just blow the roof right off of it. Well, especially when you remember that they got into a fight in the dugout at one point. Exactly. They couldn't stand each other. But let's go back to the numbers, right? They had great teams during the six years that those two played together. Great teams. Now, did they ever win a World Series? No, but part of that is there was no wild card for the first year or two that they were playing together. One year, what they win, 103 games and still fell one short of making the playoffs when there wasn't a wild card. So the stats show that they were a great team. Those two guys hated each other, yet when they were on the field, no two guys played harder, cared more about winning, and they saw each other in the other one. They knew that that other guy was going to do everything he could to win that game. And so they had incredible respect for each other. So on the field, they had great task chemistry, no social chemistry whatsoever, but incredible task chemistry. And it's the same for those 1970s A's and Yankees teams that were the 25 player, 25 cab teams didn't like each other. And yet won championship after championship. And I always get asked, well, why didn't they need team chemistry to win? And I'm like, they did. It was just on the field, which is obviously hugely important. So I went into this book thinking (laughs) Barry Bonds is my poster boy for uh, Super Disruptor. And then I start working him to give me an interview. You know, he's not playing anymore. He was brought back to the Giants as a, you know, advisor, as they do with former players. And so I'd see him around the ballpark and talk to him here and there and trying to build up trust. But in the meantime, I'm tracking down all of his old teammates and all of them said, no, Barry was not a cancer in the clubhouse because he was like on this island on his own. And the rest of the team was the team and they had their own chemistry. And yeah, did Bonds annoy them, get under their skin? Absolutely. 
but he wasn't affecting their performance in a negative way. And in fact, he lifted the performance of anybody who batted before or after Bond saw, saw their batting average go up. So he did help that team. And they also knew nobody else was going to drive in more runs, score more runs than Barry Bonds. And then I finally did get a really long, in-depth interview with him, you know, after a year of working it. And it was so interesting to see what team chemistry looked like and what that clubhouse, the dynamics of that clubhouse was through his eyes. It was so different. For example, you know, everybody would criticize him and laugh about the Barca lounger he'd have in the clubhouse and how he'd have his own personal masseuse and trainer and how he got put into his contract that the Giants would have to have a chef that could prepare foods to his liking that were healthy and all the rest of it. And people would roll their eyes. Oh, my God, what a diva. All he thinks about is himself. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, he said, I never understood it. I mean, number one, he paid for his masseuse and bought the Barca lounger on his own, but be that as it may, he said, all I ever cared about was doing the best for the fans of San Francisco because he's, you know, a Bay Area guy. That's all I cared about. And he said, so as I'm getting older, I need my rest. I need a place to lay down. And where am I going to lay down? So I got the Barca lounger. I got a masseuse because I want my body to last me a long time and be strong and healthy. And I want that chef to be feeding us all good food because guess what? That chef was cooking for everybody, but it was in my contract. So I got to see it from a different point of view too, that that's what drove him. And he's a complete introvert. He is really uncomfortable in public and in talking to reporters. So he responded by being a total jerk. He is self-centered. There's no question about that. And he is a lot of what people think he is. And he's a lot of what people don't know that he is. And what was most poignant when we got to kind of the end of the three hours and he's opening up. And I must say along the way, as he got deeper and deeper, he would suddenly like tap the brakes and say, you know, I'm really helping you out here. <laughs> I am doing you a huge favor here. And I would just say, Barry, I know you are. And I really appreciate it. And he would always just make sure I knew that he was doing this for free. Cause at first he asked me if I was going to pay him. And I said, well, I haven't paid the 150 other people. <laughs> I said, no, that doesn't, it doesn't work that way. At the end of the interview, he said, you know, I wish I could have been different. Now, I wish I could have been different. He never said, if I could go back, I'd do it over because he knows he couldn't. He couldn't be any different than he was. He said, but I tell guys now, because he'll talk to the Giants players, don't do what I did. There is no upside to that. Don't do what I did. And so he at least has that self-reflection that it wasn't about the press so much even though they got under his skin. It was about him and how he needed to have this chip on his shoulder. He needed to have that armor up in order to be that warrior, my you know archetype warrior out there. He literally is a genius when it comes to hitting. I mean, he is a savant. There's no two ways about it. 
There's a pitcher on the mound. He could tell you the next three pitchers the guy's going to throw because he sees everything. It's almost Rain Man-ish like. There's not anything that escapes in baseball anyway. Nothing that escapes his brain. Yeah, it was crazy to learn that he would literally wait to intentionally hit every single one of his milestone homers at AT AT&T Park. I thought he was kidding when he told me that. I said, oh, yeah, right. And he looked at me and I had to like change my laughter to like, oh, wow, really? That's (laughs) because he was serious. And sure enough, I went back and I looked up every single one. And he did. I mean, what about that? That's amazing. And he said he only wanted to hit him at home (laughs) because only the people of San Francisco and Giants fans deserved to see them. (laughs) (laughs) And I loved that. Such a Barry Bonds thing to say. No doubt. It speaks to the genius that you just alluded to. Former military leaders have become valued resources on leadership and team chemistry. So it makes sense that you would visit former General Stanley McChrystal. What did he teach you about bonding? Boy, he taught me a lot. And the reason why I kept pestering him for an interview was I read his book, Team of Teams. And I got more information from that book about the military than any other place. My goodness. And no entity has done more research on the connection between bonding in a group and that group's performance. And that was the hardest thing for me to connect the dots about. And the military just got it all. And one of the things that McChrystal was in charge of, and he was in charge of black ops and all kinds of different things over the years, were the SEAL teams. And those groups, bonding was as important to performance in their mind as the physical fitness of these guys and their technical skills. And the way McChrystal put it is that without that bonding, SEAL teams are just a bunch of really fit soldiers, although they're not soldiers. And what he said is that every army, every military unit, from time immemorial, knows that in battle, the most high-performing groups fight not for God and country, they fight for each other. Because that's the only thing that that bond is like love, really. That bond where you're totally committed to each other, that's the only thing that could keep you out there on that battlefield performing at a really high level in almost unbearable stress. And so a version of that is certainly a sports team. That a great, great team chemistry team is what I call a just us team. And I'm stealing that from the Golden State Warriors. And that is that their purpose shifts from winning the World Series or making history becomes a commitment to each other and they become one in the same. And it is about that, what I referred to earlier, is about being in this exact place with these exact people in this exact quest and that feeling like it's only us, only we are going to achieve 
this really difficult, almost impossible thing. Just us. Why is referring to a good team as a well-oiled machine a cliched comparison? Yeah, it's a cliche and it's so not accurate in that teams, just like any human group, we're not complicated, we're complex. And the difference in that, and I learned this in my research, is complicated is like a car engine. Everything goes in its place. And if you take out this piece, and I would name a piece if I understood any of them, but (laughs) if you take out this one piece, you know exactly what's going to happen. The car is going to catch fire or something is going to happen because it's a prescribed combination of pieces. Complex is like an ecosystem or an economy and teams are complex. In an ecosystem, let's say you wipe out all the honeybees. Well, there's going to be a ripple effect that could change the entire world. You can't just lift the honeybees out of the ecosystem and everything stays the same. And same with an economy. And it's unpredictable oftentimes. We don't know what the effect is going to be. And that's the same with the team. You know, you put a team together, you think you're hiring for this, that, or the other thing, and you may be exactly right. And you may be way off because one person affects this other person who affects this other person. And now you have this soup that you never expected. So that's why I say it's not like a well-oiled machine. It's like an ecosystem or a super organism. Really, that's probably the best way to describe it. It's like a super organism and the pieces are always moving in this ebb and flow and it's never, ever, ever staying the same even from minute to minute. You just mentioned expectation, Joan. What has research on elementary school children shown about how expectation affects performance? Yeah, there's fascinating studies on children in schools, as you said, where they told teachers that they had done these IQ tests for you know all their students, and here are the kids that are really bright and are really going to go far. And these are the kids that are more mainstream and they're fine. Well, in reality, it was totally random who the researchers told the teachers were bright and were mainstream. At the end of the school year, they do another IQ test and he's doing real IQ tests. And the ones who the teachers thought were very bright, they added IQ points. And the ones that they thought were mainstream pretty much stayed the same. And study after study, this was validated. Without knowing it, the teachers were treating those kids differently. They had more eye contact. They called on them more. They gave them praise more. They may have even put their hand on their shoulder more. They were definitely more cultivated by the teacher as bright students. So the same is true probably for all of us. What we believe and what we expect often has an impact on the other person because we have changed how we treat that other person and how we approach that other person. Interesting to read the research about teammates touching and the positive impact that can have, and it speaks to something that you label failure to thrive, or not you personally, but has been labeled over time as failure to thrive. What is failure to thrive and how does it relate to babies raised in an orphanage versus a women's prison? Well, failure to thrive, it's a cause of death. And it's given when there really is no diagnosis for this person dying. 
usually what happens is it's somebody who just stops eating and they lose interest in life and their organs start to shut down. And the study you're referring to is a study comparing babies being raised in orphanages, newborns, and newborns who were born in prisons to their mothers who were incarcerated. Now, the babies in the orphanages were not really touched. They were not really cooed over. And part of it was caregivers in these orphanages were often told, you know, to stop the spread of disease, you know, don't touch them, don't be around them so much, except for to feed them and clothe them and whatever. Now, the ones in the prisons, the mothers were able to visit them every day. They had nurses and caretakers who interacted with them and played with them. And when they checked in on these babies, it was a whole research project, checked in on these babies, like at three months, six months, a year, and even three years, the babies in the prison were so far ahead cognitively and physically from the babies that were in the orphanages. And it, again, you know, reinforced earlier studies that showed that human beings, babies most of all, need the engagement of other people. They need that touch and the voice and the eye contact of other human beings for their brains, their physical brains to actually develop. And the other example I have of failure to thrive is my own father. You know, my mother died unexpectedly a few years back. And nine months later, my father, who really had nothing wrong with him, a few months after my mother died, my sisters who live near him noticed that he was really having trouble with the remote control and dialing the phone and he stopped eating. He was sitting, you know, he would be listing to one way. He started to look like he had dementia. And as I said, nine months after my mother died, he died. And the doctors, you know, we were trying to get him to see doctors and he did and doctors couldn't find anything wrong with him. And so his diagnosis was failure to thrive. And then I subsequently learned that it's not unusual. It's not uncommon for people who've been married a long time. My parents have been married more than 50 years that when one spouse dies, the other often dies not too long after because that other person, you know, regulated them in such a way that, you know, it's literally like losing a piece of yourself. So when we look at those, it's like, how can we ever question how much each of us influences each other? Last thing, Joan, and uh, I meant the compliment that I gave you a little bit earlier. You did a fantastic job of discovering the origin stories that help explain so many different high-performing people in this book. What's the origin story that explains Joan Ryan? Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. I would say it's being the third of six children <laughs> to parents who were born and raised in the Bronx in New York. I was born in the Bronx, as my two older siblings were, and the next three were born in New Jersey, and then we moved to Florida. So I was always a part of a pack, never by myself very, very introverted. You know, as the middle child, you tend to get lost in the shuffle a little bit. I must say here too, my father was a very, very loud Irishman. <laughs> and there was a lot of yelling in my house, a, a lot of chaos <laughs> over time. And my escape were books. So I was just a great reader, went through the shelves of my local library and the school library and, and all of that. And nobody else in my family was really a reader, but also grew up playing softball because my father was a baseball fanatic. 
And so I always loved baseball. And so I think the combination of being a reader and then eventually becoming a writer, which I never set out to be, that really shaped me. And I always am so interested. My brothers and sisters and I are all so different. So I am fascinated by how that happened. One brother died, but the five of us are extremely close. And yet we're in all different walks of life. You know, most of my siblings didn't go to college and Anyway, I'm always looking at why did I turn out the way I did and Barbara turned out that way and Ken turned out that way. And we talk a lot about our upbringing together and why we are who we are. So, you know, that's my origin story. I'm just endlessly interested in other people, which, as you know, is the foundation of being a journalist. If you're not endlessly curious, it's hard to be a journalist. So I always try to find out why people are who they are in adulthood and what led them to accomplish and pursue the things they pursue. So thanks for that question, Trey. Absolutely, Joan. Curiosity kills cats, but it makes for great journalists. And Joan Ryan is an award-winning journalist whose acclaim includes becoming one of the country's first female sports columnists with the San Francisco Examiner in 1985. She's also the author of five books, most notably Little Girls in Pretty Boxes. The most recent work is Intangibles, Unlocking the Science and Soul of Team Chemistry. Joan, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this beautiful book. Thanks so much, Trey. I really appreciate it.